The gut brain acts as like a second brain sitting in the gut. And so yeah. many of your neurotransmitters, like, you know, your serotonin, all these important neurotransmitters are made, predominantly made in the digestive system, made in the gut. So when your gut is off, it just creates this whole cycle, like a domino effect of other things being off as well. You're listening to This Life Explains It All. With the creators of Vera, your guide for navigating a conscious life. We're Stefania Romeo and Catherine Griffiths. This Life Explains It All was created out of belief that our life experience is our greatest teacher. And as soul sisters and intuitives, we've spent the past decade completely obsessed with better understanding our minds and our bodies, all while running a mile a minute with busy careers as leaders in the tech startup world. On this podcast, we are bringing you the insights and lessons that have changed our lives with the thought leaders, healers, and dreamers behind them. We're discussing wellness practices, healing methods, and experiences that get us to think differently about life and live empowered. Whether you want to uplevel your health, your career, your relationship, or going through changes to your life path, this information can help you get there and let you know that we're right here with you. We believe life isn't meant to be lived linear, and no matter where you are right now, you're right on time. Today, we're talking to Aaron Lovell-Verander, an herbalist, nutritionist, and an author. You may have come across Aaron in Vogue or Elle, where she's contributed to pieces in the well-being space. Aaron's been doing this work for over 20 years. Her book, Plants for the People, comes out this March. It serves as a modern guide to plants as medicine. And after this conversation, we can't wait to read it. Kat, you found Aaron. Yes. How did you discover her? I discovered Aaron listening to a podcast on the Juliet Allen podcast, which is all about sexual well-being and really tapping into yourself sexually. Why were you <laughs> listening to that? <laughs> well, I, I don't listen to I I listen Not to that her. Any, I mean, it's great, but it just seems a little off character for you. I didn't realize. Have you learned a lot from that podcast? Yeah, I haven't listened to a ton of episodes, but I came across Aaron's where she was talking about the impact of stress and anxiety on your hormones and the different types of adaptogens and herbal methods that you can use to help that. So I saw that Erin was going to be on Juliet Allen's podcast talking about hormones and health and how stress and anxiety can impact it. So I listened to the episode and got so much out of it. So excited that we were able to have her on. So we're going to get into a lot of gut health, mind-body connection in this episode. So we'll get into that in a minute. Kat, on the topic of gut health and mind-body, how is your dry January going? Yes. Well, it's not really a dry January because uh, it was a little delayed. Well, what is it? It's just a 30-day no alcohol. Oh, okay. Because I messed up January in the beginning. So Okay. <laughs> so, okay, you can start at any time. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm doing it this way. It's going really well so far. It's a little bit, I think most of it is a habit, the habit of having alcohol when I go to lunch or dinner. So it's just more of a habit shift, but I feel very energized and more productive already. It's been seven days so far. And my sleep is off the charts. I'm just sleeping straight through the night. I'm not w waking up at night. I sound like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Are you wearing your blue blocks? Yes, I've been wearing them every night. That is a game changer. I really, I've, I've noticed such a difference because I track my sleep through my Fitbit and it gives you a score every night. And when I wear my blue blocks glasses, it's in the high 80s, which is really good. I'm not doing a dry January or a dry 30 days, but I'm just kind of having even more moderation than normal. But I have tried, I recently tried a non-alcoholic CBD and CBD THC actually wine that I loved. 
So I'm interested in getting into more of those kind Did of Did you feel anything drinks. differently after that? Definitely. I was like Were you laughing high? up a storm. I don't know. I was like laughing hysterically. I was la- I went to a dinner with friends after and I was just like so happy and laughing up a storm. It was great. It was ra- way better than the feeling of alcohol. So wow. I mean, it was the feeling of being high. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is healthier, I think. Than- yeah. <laughs> what, where, where did you get, can you get it at restaurants? I want to get some of this. No, not yet. Not yet. So you had it at it home was- before you went to the dinner. No, well, actually, at my co-working space, they were doing a tasting. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to look into that to see if they have it in Australia. Yeah, I think a lot of the brands, the ones that have THC, they're only in California or select other states that have legalized marijuana, but there are CBD products everywhere. So Maybe when I come there in February, we can have that because we're not going to be able to drink alcohol with our schedule. No, not at all. all. Yeah. Not at all. We're, we're, We're planning a big... Roadshow in yes. February. So and I cannot we're gonna be... have to be on, on point. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> May I say I think your skin looks better. I noticed that too. Yeah, it looks way better. Yeah, because I'm hydrated. All right. Should we talk about gut health? Because that's what we're gonna be getting into with Aaron. When we were living together in New York, I remember you were getting really sick off of certain things and not feeling great. And you came to a conclusion that it was food-related. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So there was a period of time over the course of, of a year, a while back, where I, I just felt like I didn't feel well. I just didn't – but I couldn't put my finger on what was wrong because it was physical, but it was also like mental and emotional as well. It was like physically, I felt really sluggish and I had these kind of low-grade headaches all the time those ones that like kind of just never go away when you go through periods of having them. And then, you know, mentally and emotionally, I was really exhausted. I had like what people call brain fog and I just didn't know what was up. So I, you know, went to a number of doctors and I did all of these things. I started some other kind of wellness practices, but nothing was getting to the root of what was wrong. I actually had to ask my doctor and I went to a great, great gastroenterologist that was recommended in New York Magazine's Best Doctors. So I was really doing my research going to a really well-known doctor. You remember that doctor? Yeah. And of course you were doing your research on it. That's definitely a Stefania thing. Yeah. (laughs) No, but then like I remember I, I became friends with that doctor. So you really build relationships with people. You're friends with your dog walker. Yeah. Everyone. It's good. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I do tend to like have friendships with like service providers <laughs> that I work with. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's true. I don't know why. Maybe because I really appreciate them and it like gives off an energy or something. Yeah. I had to ask for the blood test that showed that I had gluten antibodies and I did. And so even at that point, the doctor said, well, you don't have celiac disease. You have this kind of sensitivity or intolerance. You don't really have to change your diet. But I'm like, well, I'm going to try it. And I did. And I cut out gluten and dairy because a lot of people have gluten sensitivity also have dairy sensitivity. So I cut out gluten and I cut out dairy and I literally just felt like a new person. The way I describe it is like a fog was lifted that I didn't even know was there before and everything was clearer. I could see everything clearer. I could think my thoughts more clearly and I could move more freely without being so tired. It was a complete 180 from how I had felt before, simply from cutting out these foods that didn't agree with my body. So from that moment forward, I became really invested in researching what I ate, where my food comes from, how different things react in the body, how things like enzymes and different supplements and all of these things work. So I'm really, really interested in this space and really looking forward to sharing the conversation with Aaron. Yeah, that's so good because I feel like you're very intuitive naturally, but I think taking it to another level with food is so important because you know exactly what types of foods make your body, I guess, inflamed, really. That's what happens. Yeah. I have become really interested in food and and how it affects us generally before this. I remember I read this book called Skinny Bitch. I don't know if you have read it or heard about it. I think I've talked about it with you. And it sounds different than what it actually is. It's not about being skinny. I think they just wanted like a really catchy title so that, you know, grab people's attention. 
But I learned a lot from that book and I started questioning things from that book. You know, we came of age in a time where health food equated to food that had claims on the packages like low calorie, no fat, low sugar, whatever. And like one of the big lessons in that book was like, do not eat anything that's labeled like that. That means it's probably not really real food. And so that was like one of the first things I started doing of like not having food that was labeled that way or, or food that was marketed and and just like eating whole real food. And so I think that's so, so important. I think even when we think about like if we want to lose a little weight or get healthier, like it's different for everyone. And I know some people respond really well to like challenges or things like that with eating, but but I never really did because I think that the the biggest thing that changed the way, you know, I was able to eat healthy most of the time and keep a weight that I'm comfortable with, et cetera, is just like changing my mindset around it and thinking of food as fuel and thinking about every single thing I put in my body, like how's that going to, you know, then make my body work. And I think it's very related to how Aaron thinks about plants as medicine as well. Yeah. And going back to that point about how things are marketed, fat-free, low calorie, I feel like there's so much out there about do this diet or, you know, intermittent fasting or give up gluten. And the point is, is that it's not these things, there's, it's not a one size fits all. And the best way to navigate or that I've found to navigate through all of the stuff that's out there, it can be really overwhelming is just listen to your body and listen to when I eat this, how do I feel? Even if you take a, if you have a journal or track it through an app, I had a pizza last night. How did it make me feel? Honestly, pizza doesn't really do anything for me. It, it doesn't make me feel one way or the other. I just love it. So I'll never stop eating that. Or maybe I will if it becomes a problem. But eat intuitively. Yeah. See how your body responds. And if it's really causing a big issue, then give it up. Yeah. Easier said than done. Exactly. I remember when we were in New York and you were a vegan at one point <laughs> and I was just about to move in and you said, I will turn you to a vegan. That <laughs> didn't happen. Uh, you'll be, a, yeah, you'll be a vegan after two weeks of living here. And I was like, absolutely no, I will not. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that stuck with me during the time where I did give up meat for seven years. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, I didn't eat meat for seven years. And I remember, I think one of the things that I would share on it, and I probably talked about with you that I actually learned from that book, is that when we give up something or we stop eating something, I should say, for three weeks, oftentimes, that's all we need to not have a desire for it anymore. And in the case of meat, and this is something that fuels the debate between should humans eat meat or should humans not eat meat, and I'll say that I do eat meat occasionally now, is that human bodies are not born with the enzyme that breaks down meat and we develop it over time. We develop it you know, when we're little and when we start eating it. And so when we stop eating meat or take it out of our diet, that enzyme in our bodies kind of just goes away and we don't have it anymore. And physiologically, that desire for meat as food goes away. So I remember people saying, oh, don't you crave this? Isn't it hard to be around, you know, a great steak or a great burger, which I used to love before I stopped eating meat. And I would say, and truly meant this, like, I think of meat in the same way as like another inedible thing, like plastic or a glass. Like, I don't think of it as something that I want to eat. And it, it was because I had given up that enzyme and my body physiologically changed. So it's really, really interesting. And like I said, I've introduced it again and I have it in moderation, but that was just a fascinating experience as well to see the human body do that. Yeah. It's proven that it takes 21 days to change a habit. So I'm thinking about that with even alcohol. So much of it is just habit. And once you break that habit, it's not like, I mean, some people have really physical addictions to it and I'm not discounting that, but it's, it does take a certain amount of time to change even an addiction or a habit or anything. So we can all think about what are those things in our lives that we've been wanting to change, but it hasn't really stuck. Well, how long are you doing it for and try doing it for at least three weeks and see what happens? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, shall we get into the conversation with Aaron? We shall. I'm really excited about this one. 
You know, Erin brings such a fresh curiosity to her work and the space, and she's really committed to incorporating the very latest research in the field of wellness. She has such a wealth of knowledge, and we really learned so much from talking to her on this episode. We discuss many aspects of what it means to really be healthy, how the physical, mental, and emotional are so closely connected. And I love this part because it doesn't work if you're just thinking about the physical aspect or the, just the mental aspect. It has to be the both working together. Yeah. In this episode, we talked to Erin about gut health, how you know if your gut is out of whack and how the health of our gut is a major contributor to our mental health, how stress and anxiety can manifest into physical ailments, what stomach issues like IBS really are and what can be behind it, PCOS and how it's often misdiagnosed. And Erin gives us her recommendations on which specific herbs and adaptogens can help with issues like stress, physical imbalances, digestive health, fertility, and more. So she gives us some really great tactical recommendations. And we've actually been getting a lot of questions about adaptogens. So really excited to start that conversation with Erin here. Yeah, so let's get into it. Well, hello, Erin. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here and on the podcast. I was really inspired. I heard you on Juliet Allen's podcast, and I was really inspired by all the things that you shared around fertility and your work in the herbal world and how that can help. So we wanted to have you on our podcast and share the knowledge. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you both. Cool. Well, I'd love to start out by hearing a bit about your background. Yeah. Okay. So I'm a herbalist, nutritionist, and energetic healer. So really the training, I mean, because you guys are both American, the training is a little different in Australia. I did like a really in-depth five years straight in herbal medicine and nutritional medicine. So it's bachelor kind of degree. And my background is energetic healing. So when I was like 18, 19, I did like this very in-depth, crazy kind of course where you go and learn about all of these very out there concepts like crystal healing and color therapy and kinesiology. And that's how I really got into healing. As I've been working over the years, I thought I really want to know more about like the physical body and physical healing. And that's why I went into herbal medicine and nutritional medicine. And I've kind of carved my own path, bridging them all together and weaving all of those modalities and elements of the being together, you know, and how we can really heal holistically, truly holistically. And over those years, I've I guess my career has shifted, shape-shifted and moved and changed, but I've been in clinical practice now for many, many years and focusing on like working one-on-one with people predominantly and mentoring and teaching. And then I just wrote my first book, which is coming out in a few months. Oh, exciting. exciting. Yeah, super and, exciting. Yeah. And w- were your parents into all of this or how did you, like, what was that moment where you were just like, I want to... Not at all. Like, honestly, my parents like open to natural therapies and sort of holistic healing, but no, that really wasn't like the language that I was raised around or the school of thought. I think it came for me from a deeper sense of like, I always felt that I had a a sense of intuition. Like I always sort of led with my intuition, even as a kid and just was really connected to nature and connected to that the unseen forces, you know, what you can't always see and you can't always measure and quantify. And I think that always really fascinated me. And even when I was like 13 and I got my first tarot deck, my neighbor always gave me crystals. And it was like, she was a lovely old English lady who loved crystals. And I was so fascinated by the much more sort of esoteric world of healing. But my grandmother was like, my lineage is like Russian gypsy. And she was very, very intuitive and Yeah. And I guess there were elements of of her that I felt like were imprinted on me. And it was just, I don't know, it was really like, I felt like it was just a deep sense of belonging and a call actually, not something that was like given to me as much or taught to me. That's so interesting because I feel like a lot of people, including myself, like I have to do a lot of work to get back to that place of what do I want intuitively and who am I authentically? Because I kind of, you know, got off that path for a little bit and went down, you know, the traditional career and, you know, what society wants. So it's interesting that you just went for it. with it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think a lot of it, particularly back then, you know, now it's like, there's this like wellness movement. There's this wellness world that is this massive kind of entity 
back then there was like nothing like that. So it really was truly odd to kind of do that kind of work nearly 20 years ago when I got into it. But I love that it's all come to the forefront and consciousness now in a really different way. I can be who I am and get to do things like this and be heard and impact people in a deeper way because it's kind of understood in a deeper way now. What did your grandmother do to implement some of those things when you were growing up? I mean, there was a lot of like connection to nature. There was a lot of listening to your intuition. And it's not like she ever said, hey, this is how you listen to your intuition, but it was really watching her the way she interacted and the way that she connected and communicated, she was a very intuitive woman. And so was my other grandmother. So I think that was a little something that was, I don't know, inherent in me. But it is so much like everybody's got that intuitive compass. It's just about trusting it. Even like what you said, you know, you lose your way a little bit sometimes and it's just about returning to your center and coming back and trusting it. In terms of how to get back to that intuitive self, if you have lost your way, from your perspective, what would you recommend that somebody do? I think we all have that innate, like, it's almost like, you know, when they say it's like a gut feeling, that like innate gut feeling, that's your intuition, you know, that knowing that you have deeper inside. And often it manifests in just like a little whisper, a feeling in your body, a whisper in like a thought, or, you know, you do something against what you know, you think you might do. And instantly it's really challenging. Like you're not in the flow, you're dreading something. It doesn't feel good. It's like, you've gone against that gut feeling. So a lot of it is just connecting back in and allowing yourself the quiet and the space to even hear what that message might be. And so like time in nature, meditation, conscious breath, giving yourself the spaces in between to listen, to anchor in. We are just not giving ourselves much space these days, you know, to listen, to even be able to hear any messages. The quietness in between is such a beautiful way to be able to listen to your intuition. So you talked about gut feeling, and I think that might be a nice transition into one of the big areas that we want to talk about with you, which is gut health. And we know you're an expert on all things gut health. So to get started, can you talk about like, why is gut health so important? It's so important because I believe it's like the foundation of everything, you know, the foundation of all of our health, pretty much every system in the body or every disease presentation imbalance, you can bring it back to the digestive system having an impact. So, you know, especially nowadays with like all of the advances and the information that's coming out there about the microbiome, you know, and that bacterial makeup that we've all got. And the imbalances, like even coming back to if you were a C-section baby versus a vaginal birth baby and how that can, you know, have impacted you. And I was born in 82 and a C-section baby and it was like, no one had any idea about, you know what I mean, about that kind of information and, and how that could impact you long term. Can you talk about that a little bit for anyone who's not aware? Think about the difference. Like when you're vaginally birthed, you're going through the vaginal canal and you're getting a whole bunch of that bacteria through the vaginal canal. And I'm making it kind of simple here, but there's a lot of like protective mechanisms and beneficial floras of vaginal birth babies. C-section babies, obviously we're not taking that journey through the birth canal. So we're not getting that inherent bacteria, that exposure to that inherent bacteria through the vaginal canal you know, do some research and have a look at the options because there's many ways that you can do that as well. And then people that are C-section babies, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're deficient of this bacteria. Therefore, this is what your health is going to be like. Don't limit yourself that much or think that that's going to happen, but there's ways to support your health and make sure your gut health is really robust. It's important for everyone, not just people who are born by C-section. I've been so fascinated with starting to learn more about the microbiome, especially in that it's so linked to you know, our overall health. So can you talk a little bit about like, how does our gut health impact our mental and emotional health? Right. Well, it's huge because the gut brain acts as like a second brain sitting in the gut. And so yeah. many of your neurotransmitters, like, you know, your serotonin, all these important neurotransmitters are made, predominantly made in the digestive system, made in the gut. So when your gut is off, it just creates this whole cycle, like a domino effect of other things being off as well. It's cool that there's so much research going into looking at like the gut brain axis linked with depression and linked with anxiety and even linked with IBS because IBS has that emotional and functional action. So when a lot of people have irritable bowel syndrome, there's an emotional anxiety element that triggers the gut sy symptom as well. 
Gosh, that's such a deeper conversation because you have to peel back the layer of what's underneath the IBS, which maybe we can go into a little bit later. But I think so many people just get slapped with that. You've got IBS. I mean, I get it so many times that people come to me and say, I went to the GP, I went to the gastroenterologist, I've I've done all of these things and they just say I have IBS. Well, a lot of the times irritable bowel syndrome, there's far deeper issues underneath like food intolerances, leaky gut syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, parasites, yeast, bacteria, all these other things that can be going on in the gut. And that is just being slapped on with the title of IBS. But actually there's deeper reasons in deeper functional reasons why the gut is so reactive. Often there's that anxiety stress component with a nervous gut. And it makes so much sense when you understand the gut brain axis more as well. Well, so on that note, if someone is experiencing anxiety, depression, something that feels more emotional or mental, how might they know or be able to identify, okay, this might be being influenced by my gut? And then like, what are the next steps from there? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I mean, I think you need to think about anxiety and depression in such a holistic sense, because I really think it needs to be looked at in all these different avenues of what's going on in your life. So it's like editing your lifestyle, making sure you're doing these amazing pillars, taking care of yourself with these amazing pillars, like good water, great food, rest, moving your body, you know, making sure that you're getting the basics down, which most of us seem to forget really easily, especially when you're under stress or you're experiencing emotional upheaval. And all of those things will only impact the gut positively, honestly. So, you know, drinking water and eating good food. And like, that's really something that will take great care of your gut, reducing your stress levels, but looking specifically like what you can do with your guts reacting. I would say like a probiotic can really help. That is true. But more than taking a supplement, you've got to change the behaviors and get those things down, like those everyday basics, you know, because we really can't out supplement anything. It's really important that we're like drinking, eating good food, you know, and keeping the stress down, moving our body. All of those things are essential for gut health. But even around food, pull out inflammatory foods, pull out foods that don't feel good for your body. So if you're eating a lot of dairy and gluten and sugar, those can be super pro-inflammatory and they can really put an extra load on your body, really exacerbate anxiety and depression. If your body's underlying inflamed and reactive, you've got to pull all those things down as much as possible. And there are beautiful herbs that can help with anxiety and depression and gut issues too, because like I said, often people get anxiety and then they get that kind of irritable bowel episode where their gut is really nervous. They might have like bowel changes, like bowel movement changes, and just find it really challenging to have an appetite when you've got depression and anxiety. So I think about carminative herbs first. And carminative herbs are a class of herbal medicines that really relax and support and soothe the nervous system in the gut. So we're talking about like peppermint and lemon balm. We're talking about Lavender can be really nice to calm the the nerves and kind of calm the gut too. Yeah, peppermint and lemon balm are like ones that you get a lot of kind of instant sort of relaxation and instant calming sort of effect on the gut. But also other herbs like ginger can be so supportive to kind of soothe the nervous system and calm a nervous belly down as well. And also ginger will be great to like lift nausea and help an appetite, to stimulate an appetite. So there's all of these often very simple herbs that we can use in the everyday that are so supportive for our health and for our guts and for our mental health. It's almost like you could talk about this for hours. Like it's so, it's so in depth, you know, actually if people are listening and they, and they do have a lot of IBS, one of the most common, like sweet supportive things I use is this old formula called Iberogast and you can get it in the States and you can get it in Australia and you can get it in Europe. It's a traditional European formula and it's great for IBS and like irritable bowel sort of symptoms. So again, this is like all sorts of things that can go on with the gut, constipation, diarrhea, like bloating, nausea, poor appetite. And it's such a beautiful old school European formula that works so well and it's all herbals. So you can kind of get that anywhere to work with if anyone just needs something quickly to kind of bring into their everyday life to support as well. On the topic of digestion, I was recently told that I went to an acupuncturist and she told me that I'm only absorbing around 30% of the nutrients, which was kind of scary because if I have a day where I don't eat very healthy, then that means I'm pretty much absorbing nothing. 
So do you have any insight into why that happens and why we're not absorbing all of our nutrients? Yeah. I mean, often there's underlying digestive dysbiosis there. So there's something going on in the gut that's kind of loaded up the gut a little bit. And usually when there's a malabsorption issue, there's underlying dysbiosis like leaky gut syndrome. When, like again, those, we've talked about SIBO, parasites, food intolerances, things mm-hmm. like that. Do you notice that you've got some digestive symptoms or any history of gut issues like that? A little bit. I mean, I have bloating a lot. Yeah. So that's the one, the one main thing that I notice. I mean, there's definitely like certain foods for sure that will, like if I eat really unhealthy, then that will spike it. Alcohol will spike it. So there's definitely food, but I feel like in general, I just feel like I'm very prone to bloating. Right. It's tricky because sometimes it's as simple as like you might have some low like stomach acid and you need to like raise those hydrochloric acid and those digestive juices a little bit, even with like apple cider vinegar and warm water in the morning to kind of raise mm-hmm. digestive power and fire and raise those kind of digestive juices up can be super helpful. Sometimes it's just as simple as like poor digestion. So I don't want everyone to think, oh my God, I've got SIBO or parasites or, you know, yeast or <laughs> something. Know. Yeah. But um, so sometimes it can be as simple as that. And it's mm-hmm. always really good to start with these simple measures you know, to see if that actually helps first. But often, you know, when there is like chronic bloating, it can be that there are other things going on. And it's really tricky to know what's going on with the gut. I really don't believe, even if you're a great clinical practitioner, a naturopath, herbalist, nutritionist, it's really hard to know what's going on with the gut without testing you know, without doing some really good testing, because when you test, you, you stop guessing, you know, you, you get the answers. It's like a really clear roadmap. So I do a lot of testing because I find it so helpful to work on people's guts. And that will tell us like what's actually going on a little bit more that might be contributing to your bloating. And usually it is something like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or a bit more like you might have a little bit more of a yeasty gut. So you're sensitive to yeasts when you eat different foods, alcohol, starchy foods, you might notice a bit more bloating, things like that. So it can be a bunch of things, but start simple. On that note, do you have any before and after transformative stories of somebody that has come to see you and done tests around the gut and then has completely... I don't even know how many. You truly, like hundreds. It's definitely like something I do pretty much if you know, I've got a clinic day and I'm seeing a bunch of patients, like half of them will have digestive stuff going on, you know, and true, most people who who come and see me, they'll have like everyone presents. It's so rare that anyone will not have something going on with their guts. So most of the time I'm working quite closely with people on digestive protocols. And yeah, like, you know, there's people that, again, they've seen gastroenterologists, they've seen, you know, all their, you know, GPs, they've done all of this, as much testing as they can do via the GP, via their general practitioner. And they've had like no answers. So they're, they're like, oh, nothing's wrong. You've just got IBS. Like off you go, you know, eat a low FODMAP diet, which is hard, first of all, to actually maintain. And second of all, you know, I think it's not a long-term solution to eat a very limited diet. So, They'll come in and they'll say, I've done everything. And then we'll usually go into testing, test for SIBO, test for parasites, yeast, bacterias. And often, always, let me say, I wouldn't say often, pretty much always, there's things going on. So then what we do is we go on a protocol to eradicate those overgrowths and to really correct and heal up the gut. And it really, it can take time. You know, it's a dedicated, it's to do things naturally. It takes time to really heal the gut. But I can't tell you how many people get better. People always get better. I haven't worked with anyone that doesn't get better, you know, with when you work naturally on the gut. Like these are people that couldn't tolerate any foods or had chronic bloating. And people would send me photos. People always send me photos where they're like, this is my bloating, just so you can see really how bad it is. And these like tiny women look nine months pregnant. Seriously, they're huge, at least six months pregnant. And they're like, I actually can't believe it, but I I don't bloat anymore. Like this happens all of the time because you're not band-aiding the symptoms. You're getting to the root and you've got to, you know, that's what naturopathic medicine is. It's all about getting to the roots of what's actually going on. So with those people, can they eat then everything again? It was like, so it's like clearing it out and then they can eat it. Or is it like they can't have this certain type of food anymore? I know it's different for everyone. It's different for everyone. Like a lot of people can reintroduce a lot of foods and tolerate them quite well, but some other people find it really hard and they're inherently sensitive to like gluten or dairy or something weird like almonds that might've want to be, you know, been their triggers. So they've got to be mindful, but some people eat completely freely and they're absolutely fine. 
How do you feel about digestive enzymes? Because I sense that it's been making a big difference for me. Like one of the things that I noticed was I was always drinking like tons of water and feeling like I was really hydrating myself, but I was still feeling like dehydrated in my body, on my skin. And then once I started taking the digestive enzymes, I noticed that I felt like more hydrated, like maybe it was helping me absorb that a little bit more. Like, is that what's going on there? And how do you feel about digestive enzymes in general? I use digestive enzymes pretty frequently. I think they're really important because even like what I was saying earlier to Kat is like, if you don't have enough digestive juices, like actually kind of being raised up before you eat a meal, uh, if you've got poor kind of hydrochloric acid, poor digestive enzymes, that can mean you you bloat a lot and you can't actually break down your foods and also will have a flow on effect to how you absorb your foods as well. So I think digestive enzymes are great. I think they're important to actually work on breaking down meals and breaking down nutrients more efficiently. The connection between the hydration piece is a little bit, I wouldn't necessarily connect the digestive enzymes with the hydration, but I think the overall being able to digest your food and break down foods is the biggest piece of why I would use digestive enzymes. We talked a lot about like the physical piece and sort of the the connection and we touched a little bit on the more kind of like mental, emotional. would love to just dig into that a little bit more before we move on from this piece. Have you kind of had success stories in your practice with people who are more focused on healing mentally and emotionally from working on the gut? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I believe all parts of your being need to come on board to really make a huge shift. So I believe that if you just approach it from the mental and emotional space, that you still need to do levels of physical work and then vice versa, you just coming from a physical space, you need to work on the mental and emotional elements as well. So sort of to answer that and to pivot a little bit is like, I actually believe all parts need to come on board to really make a a huge shift. But I, I do believe the emotional and a mental piece is like so valuable and important to understand what's going on with your body and the patterns that you're running around being out of balance with your body. I just feel like it's so fascinating that so much of what we feel mentally and emotionally can be influenced by our gut health, which just feels like an idea that's newer in terms of people talking about it and can be really, really helpful for people to know especially with things like anxiety, where it's so hard to put your finger on what really is going on. For sure. For sure. And like, again, that all that amazing emerging research around, you know, specific strains of bacteria, like implicated with people who have more depression, you know, and there's just, so it is really fascinating. So again, it's coming back to how can I improve my health, therefore impact my gut health positively, with lifestyle and dietary interventions. And then on the next layer, how can I improve my gut health by taking care of myself deeper from a mental emotional space? And I think the biggest driver there is stress. So how can I reduce stress and perceive stress to actually impact my gut positively? In your opinion, what is the reason for just such a high level of stress everywhere? Totally. I just believe it's like the modern pace. Like something has really shifted. And I do believe it is with technology and the way we consume and the way we consume ourselves, you know, with being on screens and with being available to that all of the time. It's like, you know, growing up when somebody wanted to get a hold of you, because I'm 37, it's like, you know, there was no mobile cell phones. It was like, you had to call the house. And if you were out, you were out, you know, you were unavailable, right? Like now you can be in the middle of a beautiful dinner with your partner, your phone pings, and you get like a work ping. And you instantly go into some sense of like, oh my God, I got to go do that. I'm like panicked. I'm stressed about, you know, you instantly switch into a different mode. I just feel like we're sprung in all these different areas and being pulled into all these different areas because of the way we're connected to everything. And I think what we do is we actually, we don't allow ourselves to have our own process because we're so engaged in performing, producing and consuming. And I think a lot of that is around like social media. It's around lack of boundaries around emails. It's just, there's not a whole lot of being anymore. Yeah. And like human connection. 
Yeah, that's something that we've been talking about a lot. It's like we're all so connected from a technological standpoint, but we're very disconnected from, you know, human to human contact because we are so connected through a cell phone or through emails or whatever. Yeah. And it's like the interactions we have feel more transactional, even if we are having a lot of them. Like when you are talking to somebody, it feels like there's a lot more of that small talk. Like it's not like that those deep conversations because we're interrupted. So it's like, okay, here, you know, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's get moving on to something else. So what are some of the things that you do to counteract that? We spend a lot of time in nature. Like uh, we live in this beautiful area up here in the Byron Bay hinterland and it's hard to not be in nature. You know, you're sort of everywhere you are, there's an element like the ocean, the bush, the countryside. So we spend a lot of time in nature and because my husband and I, like we both work on screens, like I've got a completely digital clinic now, which is amazing, but I do spend a lot of time like sitting down and, and in front of my screen and he's a designer and so same, same. So we really do our best to like switch off and get outside and like always do that mornings and afternoons, like always be taking these kind of breaks where it's like enough switch off and be present in different ways. So a lot of like editing in in conscious editing for me in my life around, you know, when you work for yourself and you're entrepreneurial, like you really could be working all of the time. You know, you have to consciously say, I have to be available to myself. So I have to switch off at these times. And that's definitely something I've cultivated. So lots of time in nature and the switch off screen stuff. So like I do really consciously get only to my phones because I've got like a work phone and, you know, my personal phone. I, I really don't touch them until like 8.39 a.m. when I've been up for a few hours and then I can engage. So I really try to do my best to give like these bookends at the beginning of the day and the end of the day where it's like power down and it's like no more engaging because otherwise, you know, you really, I feel like I could be on, on there all of the time and that's not great for my process and my well-being. And then like, how can I be available to others if I feel really empty and drained all of the time? Exactly. Yeah. That's something that I've been really doing recently is, you know, waking up even earlier than what I normally would do a meditation, just have that time for myself. And I've noticed such a difference in how I show up with everyone else because I'm not like immediately like answering to things. So I have noticed such a difference in, in doing that. I think it's so important. Awesome. And it's only recent. So I'll see how it goes. So good. (laughs) How did you do that? Or did you do it when you were, you know, starting to build up your business? Like as someone who is an entrepreneur, runs her own business, I think that relates a lot to what we're doing right now. And a lot of people we know who might be building a business or might be, you know, growing in their career and finding that boundary setting feels like a big trade-off? Like, how did you do it then? Gosh, I'm thinking back. How did I do it? I've always been a big meditator too. So I think I already had that. I believe I already had that practice where I was quite strict about like giving myself that time and space. So that was always really helpful for me, a skill that I've cultivated since I was like, honestly, 16 or 17 in meditation. I really always understood that when you're in the area of giving, you really need to be receiving. And I've always understood that because of my own experiences with how depleted I can feel if I'm not doing those things. So I I think I learned pretty early on saying that though, I've had like absolute episodes and ups and downs where I've learned it in a really big way. Like last year, I learned it in a really big way again, where I pushed myself too hard and had to pull back again. But I've always kind of learned like when I, when I push myself in that way and I don't give myself that space and I just am like, go, go, go producing and performing, I become a little shell of myself, I guess. So it's like, I'm good at my job so I can show up and, and do it, but I'm not as great as I can be. So I've always really done my best to, you know, give myself a ton back as I'm in this field of like healing and holding other people's process, which I really honor and respect that people trust me and I want to do my best. So I've realized I got to be at my best. I've got to give back to myself. But in those early days, I did do like really long clinic hours. I was in there like the mornings and the evenings and I lived like two hours away. So I'd stay overnight near my clinic in the Sydney for a few days. And it was intense, you know, but also saying that at the time, I think my vitality for it was high because I was so like impassioned and really excited about it. So I was like, I knew it needed a lot more in those early days. 
I think that's a good point because it's like you do feel more vitality and more passion and it doesn't feel like work when you are just loving every minute of it. That's an important point too, because I think, and now we're getting a little bit on a little bit of a tangent, but I think about this when people talk about like work-life balance or shutting it off. I mean, that looks different for different people because I think sometimes it's more of an integrated approach versus one thing is here and the other is separate. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I really believe for me, it's challenging to do division there because it's like my path and my purpose. And I feel so passionate and in love with what I do. And my career keeps evolving. Like now I'm an author. Like it's so awesome. You know, I I didn't think, I didn't really think I've been author, you know what I mean? Like in a few years and get to do that. It's like, it keeps evolving. And I have these projects that I'm so passionate about. Even in creating my book, it was like, I need to give it everything I've got. You know, I really, I want to give it everything I've got. So yeah, I do feel like that work-life balance thing, when you're impassioned and it's your purpose and you're on path, it's, I don't even know if it's relevant. Like I know there's balance that you need to, I absolutely, like I said, giving back to yourself, all those things, switching off, but you've got to find your own unique form of balance. It's just, it's not something people can dictate to you what that looks like. I don't believe I have one question actually about the book because you you mentioned it and we'll talk about it at the end some more, but how did that come to be? It was very kismet, I guess. I had wanted to write a book for a while and a lot of my friends were publishing books and I really noticed like they were writing books, getting book deals. I noticed every time someone got a book deal, I was so pumped for them, but it would put this like little sting inside of me, you know, I was like, why am I not doing a book? I've got a book in me. I'm not doing anything. And so my husband was like, you need to do a book proposal. But honestly, again, with my full-time clinic and my, my client load, it was challenging, you know, to have time to be creative. And so I didn't do the book proposal until I hit like complete insane burnout, like mid last year, really intense. And I don't know if you guys have listened to me talk about it much on other podcasts, but it was really humbling. I had to sort of change everything and really take care of myself a lot deeper And in that time where I just opened up a lot of space, I took a few months off clinic and we actually moved up here. Like all of these things changed uh, for me. And I I really transformed my life and got so much happier, like so much happier. Although the version of my life before was really beautiful, I needed different things. So in that time where I started to change everything and had to just completely lay still and sort of surrender to the process of healing – I got like this message from a publisher and she had read an article that I'd done and someone had suggested the, the, the lady that wrote the beautiful article on the plant hunter, this awesome, I don't know if you guys know it, but this wonderful plant loving platform, they had just done a book with her and my publisher was looking for someone to do a plant medicine book and had sort of seen my work and she'd suggested me and it was just like this bizarre thing where she got in touch with me and she said, do you want to do a book? And I was like, uh, who is this lady writing me up? I want to do a book, you know? And then I looked her up and it's like, it was really honestly one of my most favorite publishing houses, Thames and Hudson. And I was so excited and it just flowed. I just said yes to the process, even though I was in that space of like really feeling a little out of myself. I just thought, you know what, this is a bigger picture. I want to bring this forward. And I said, yes. And I did a book proposal and it just flowed. I, yeah, I got the book deal really quickly after that. It sounds like you surrendered and then it came to you. Yeah. Yeah. I surrendered. Exactly. And it came to me. I opened up the space. Sometimes you've really got to open up the space in a big way for things to come forward like that. And then I spent the last year writing it. It's been such a cool process. It's been great. It's been so fun to be creative because a lot of my work is like, it's intuitive, but it's not creative. You know, I don't get to be creative in my job as a clinical practitioner. I get to really use my head and my heart and my senses, but I don't get to be in that free creative space. So I've, I've really loved it. That's awesome. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. Well, I would love to move on. I know that we were talking initially about fertility and how stress can impact that. I've seen that you've written some articles and done interviews around this topic. So what is your experience? I feel like fertility is something that gets it seems like it's being brought up more and more in today's world. And I don't know if it was always like this or what's going on. I think it's really changing. I do think, I mean, the statistics show there's a lot more fertility challenges nowadays. I do believe a lot of it, the driver is stress, you know, in our lifestyles. 
a lot of it, I think the onus a lot of the time goes on to women, but there's men experiencing fertility challenges as well. You know, to talk specifically about hormonal issues and challenges with women, I do believe that there are a bunch of things going on that all relate back to stress and lifestyle elements. Like if we're talking about polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis, you know, looking at improving your lifestyle greatly can impact those two conditions massively. And I think a lot of women nowadays, this is a, this is a tangent, but it's like a lot of women are so in their yang because we're no longer, you know, we're not like at home, like all of the time and like nesting and taking care, you know, taking care. And I don't mean in a 1950s way. I mean, in like a, you know, in like a traditional, like ancestral, like it was the the women was doing more of the soft work, you know? And a lot of the time now, like we're all out there with careers, you know, we're like driven, we're making it work. A lot of people have children as well. I mean, it's, there's like mom and you know, woman working and like all of the roles that you're juggling, partner, daughter, whatever it might be, friend. It's, it's just, it's, it's a lot. And I think energetically there's a bit of an imbalance that, that are going on for women being so deeply in their yang and not giving themselves enough space to experience the softness. And this doesn't mean you can't be like an incredible CEO and not be in your yin. You know, you can be out there like epic next level kind of what would look like a young woman and you might be like so yin. How do you help get into your yin? The most beautiful things that you can do is to do things that are creative, to do things that are soft and supportive. So things like reading and journaling and walking and yin fluid movement, like dancing. Dancing is such a beautiful yin thing to do. Get into your body Obviously things like yoga, you know, things that are like soft, like yin yoga, soft body movement. I I find I do this a lot. Like at the end of the night when I've, at the end of the day, when I've had a lot going on, I just lay on the floor and we live in a big church and so it's got like these amazing ceilings, but I just lay on the floor and look at the ceilings. Just look at the beams. It's like, it's yin. I'm not doing anything. I'm just, I'm in the space in between. You live in a big church? Yes, yeah, That's yeah, so yeah. Cool. we live in a big old converted church. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. We feel very grateful to be there, which was like funny because yeah. you know I was coming from this like burnout healing recovery, and then I moved into a church, you know, <laughs> um, which was like perfect um, for recovery, you know, and just like feeling that they were like there's real there's prayer and healing in the bones of that building. So yeah, like I just lay there and be passive. In a way, being passive is being in, not passive to anybody being dominant on you, being passive in your own experience, just receiving, allowing yourself to receive, lay under a tree, look at the tree, connect to nature, hang out with flowers. It sounds funny, but it's like, just be passive. Don't do anything. Just be, you know, or when you're engaging in creative processes, it's so yin, it's it's so soft and it's so feminine. And it's that energy, I think is what we need to bring in so much more for stress relief and to balance out all the doing that we that we're like engaging in so heavily every day. You mentioned PCOS, polycystic ovaries and yeah. endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Recently I, I mean I haven't looked into this fully, but I was told that I could have a minor case of polycystic ovaries. So, you know, upon looking into it, it seems like a lot of women are struggling with that or being diagnosed with it. Totally. What is your experience with that and do you have any kind of natural tips that can help anyone that is going through that? Definitely. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's really tricky because I feel like what's happening now is a lot of women are getting slapped with that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I believe a lot of the time it's being incorrectly diagnosed or it's not being explained correctly to them because there's subtypes of polycystic ovarian syndrome. Mm -hmm. And also it's it's a collection of symptoms Mm -hmm. essentially. So people think about it like, oh, it's like a disease. It's actually a collection of symptoms that all really tie back to issues with ovulating and ovulation, so missing ovulation cycles. And you have to really look at what's actually going on underlying that's causing the issue with the ovulation, not sort of just like this, oh, you got PCOS. I don't know. It's just not 
people think it means something, but what we, it does, but I mean, you need to go to what's actually going on with ovulation and what's the driver. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time insulin issues and insulin resistance are, are the issue. So to explain to everyone, it's like blood sugar irregularities where your insulin's clocking higher. Mm-hmm. When you get a fasting insulin test via the GP, you'd be able to know whether you've got some insulin issues, even just with that little snapshot of where your insulin's at. But there's diff- like I said, there's different types of PCOS. There's like an inflammatory driver for PCOS. There's post-pill, post-OCP, PCOS. So there's different drivers. You need to figure out the driver. You know, classically, the collection of symptoms for people are weight gain. This is what they classically think of as PCOS woman. Weight gain, she's generally on the bigger side, a little curvier. Skin issues, acne breakouts, a little bit more hairy, so a little bit more male pattern, you know, hairiness around the chin, even on the chest, you know, getting a little, you notice you're a bit more hairy, right? And then when they do a, p- a pelvic ultrasound, they see lots of follicles. So usually it's diagnosis, diagnostic of 12 follicles or more. Now, think about, you know, being a woman of our sort of age, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but, you know, being of our age, we are all fertile. So we're going to generally have lots of follicles sitting on the ovaries. So you can't just diagnose, just I want everyone to hear that, that again, you cannot diagnose PCOS via an ultrasound alone. Okay. Cause that's what mine, my okay. situation was. It was just that I had way more, like more than 12 follicles right. than what. Well, I'm really happy you're hearing this because you can't <laughs> diagnose PCOS just by yeah, an ultrasound, <laughs> right? It's got, you've got to look at the bloods and the symptoms as well, because it's a collection of symptoms. So usually in the bloods, are there high androgens? You've got to look at all these elements to really look at, is it actually PCOS and what's the driver? So working with an awesome naturopathic practitioner, herbalist, et cetera, who really knows their stuff, you can make such progress with PCOS because it really is so responsive to diet and lifestyle changes. So a lot of women will come in set, you know, and they will have PCOS and I'll work with them on diet and lifestyle and herbs as well. Beautiful herbs to reduce androgens, to balance their hormones. Like even licorice is an incredible herb to balance excess testosterone. So we'll work with all these bunch of things and then they don't have it anymore. You know, they'll totally go out of that polycystic picture. What are the biggest diet and lifestyle changes that you are recommending and seeing working for PCOS and fertility in general? Yeah. Well, for PCOS specifically, moving your body is so, so important because often there is that insulin irregulation issue. So we really need to move our bodies to get those insulin receptors balanced and singing a little bit more. And just if there's a little excess weight too, like just being mindful of even shifting a few kilos can make a, hu- a huge difference with that polycystic picture as well and that an-, an ovulation, lack of ovulation picture. So moving your body, so exercise, body movement. And I wouldn't say it's even about really intensive exercise. It's just about sustained, regular body movement. Some people, they'll go to the extreme with exercise. What I always say to women too is just be really mindful of like, do you even have enough energy to push your body to that place? Because a lot of time people have an underlying adrenal issue. There's an underlying, you know, adrenal HPA axis issue in some way. So the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal, I'm just going to say adrenal fatigue. That's what it means. It's an HPA issue. But, you know, that kind of adrenal fatigue or, or just exhausted you know, picture so many women are in it now and they do this really intensive exercise and they're actually pushing their bodies to a place that they don't want to go. And what it does is raise cortisol, that key stress hormone, and into kind of an uncomfortable zone. And that also negatively affects the insulin too. So sometimes you've really got to think about, is that intensive exercise the right thing for you? Where are you at in your menstrual cycle? How's your energy feeling? Mix your exercise up, do a bit of both. But sustained exercise is super important for PCOS. A really clean diet is really important. So pulling out foods that might be causing inflammation, again, those kind of top pro-inflammatory foods, we're talking usually when we say pro-inflammatory, gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, pulling them down, you know, and out if you can, or moderate, you know, just be mindful of them. And then eating a clean whole foods diet with a focus on quality proteins, quality fats, lots of veggies, and an element of complex carbohydrate. Because often with PCOS diets, I totally get a lot of people who have PCOS, they go on ketogenic diets. I see this a lot. 
that basically have no carbohydrate. For some women, that's great because it will really help support insulin. But at the same time, other women who have underlying adrenal and thyroid issues, it's terrible for them. So the most well-rounded advice I could give is to be on like a really kind of clean whole foods diet that has a nice focus on protein and fats and little complex carbs, veggies, low sweets, like low, like no sugar, low fructose, even just, you know, some low fructose fruits, but I would keep it super, super low because we've got to get your insulin under control. That's the main driver with PCOS. Yeah, it's so interesting that you said that about the exercise because it's so like crazy timing because even like just a week ago, I was intuitively because I'm a big like run. I push myself. I run a lot and do really, I like high intensity workouts just because I feel so great after. Right. But in the last week, like intuitively, I was just like, I have to cut back on this. I feel like I was doing it too much. So it was, that's really interesting that you like, my, yeah. I was like, I actually cannot push my body to yeah. do this today. Or, You've got to listen to that. Yeah. And it really changes with your hormones and where you're at in your cycle too. So, you know, just really listening to that, have, you know, going a little bit more yin and softer exercise, you know, when you're kind of, especially closer to that bleed or bleeding, you know, going a lot more sort of gentle. And then if you're just a little bit more burnt out and tired, like definitely go more gentle. Yeah. And yeah. just do something lighter. Yeah. In terms of fertility in general, are there certain herbs that can help with that? Yes, there are. But again, every case is so different. But definitely there are herbs that can work on like supporting fertility and balancing cycles. And, you know, uh, there's also like different supplements that can be super helpful for fertility. I mean, I always think of CoQ10 when people are trying to get pregnant, like ubiquinol and CoQ10. It's funny, like a lot of fertility clinics, they really don't recognize any, any, you know, natural herbs and and supplements, but what they will generally put women on is CoQ10, which I think is interesting because there's a lot of evidence based around that. So maybe consider that if you guys are trying to get pregnant and be extra fertile. Around your your hormones too, just keeping them really balanced, you know, there's a lot of herbs that will really help and support balancing your hormones, but you know, I'm, I think one of the, the biggest parts is like really supporting your adrenal system and that nervous system stress response. So using some adaptogenic herbs can be super helpful to like ground in the body and manage stress. So we're talking about everyone right now. I think when you say adaptogenic herb, I think they think about like ashwagandha, like withania as yeah, the top, but there's like many, many other adaptogens, Siberian ginseng, ashwagandha, gochicola, American ginseng. There's a lot of herbs that can just support. So I think getting your stress under control is super important for fertility. Mm-hmm. For women, you know, a shatavari is a beautiful like herb to use like for fertility. There's so many. It's like there's actually so many different types of herbs. It's it's also super dependent on what else is going on with your body. What might be the underlying drivers to a little bit of imbalance? Just on that note, I'm curious, what are you seeing in your practice in terms of what else is out of balance that's contributing? Mainly people are experiencing a lot of anxiety and a lot of like just burnout, like burnout and anxiety are probably the main thing that you see people presenting with. I don't know. I mean, if, if people have fertility challenges too, it's incredibly stressful. Like it's so emotional and it's taxing. So there's always an element of like anxiety and stress that comes in with a fertility challenge. But mostly generally in my practice, there's a lot of autoimmune issues, a lot of burnout, a lot of anxiety, and a lot of gut issues. If those are the, those are the top kind of pillars that I see. So it's almost um, like take those gut kind of directives that we talked about earlier, and that mm-hmm. contributes to this as well. Totally. I mean, even endometriosis is, there's a huge area that's being researched around endometriosis that it is potentially connected back to bacteria from the gut, from the bowel, moving into different regions of the body, into the pelvis. So that's definitely still a question mark. But these actual evidence about in a lot of women's pelvises who endometriosis sufferers, there were specific strains of bacteria found that it's connected between all of these endometriosis sufferers and not with people who don't have endometriosis. So they're just doing more research around like it's coming back to the gut. And also endometriosis is an inflammatory immune condition. And we're starting to rethink how we treat endometriosis, well, particularly from a naturopathic perspective. And if you've got endometriosis, please see an awesome naturopath. It's such a different approach. It really is because people are just, it's such a challenging condition to be dealing with. 
And it really is about diet and lifestyle having a huge impact and supplements. I feel like everything's coming back to the gut. Well, I know that we're a bit short on time or we're running low on time, but we would love to ask you just one last question. What in your life would you say has been your greatest teacher? I actually believe my greatest teacher has been the most challenging times I've been through. Like, you know, the times when you're in the mud, in the trenches, it is like so hard yeah. and you're wondering if everything's, you know, ever going to get better or, you know, change. And I really feel like from those times, I have had the biggest breakthroughs and the most like amazing, like golden nuggets have like come from those experiences. So for me, yeah. And that, that that's it. And I'm always telling people that because I get to see people generally in their most vulnerable, like they're in the trenches, th- those times that's so vulnerable. So I feel like I've been able to really, I believe that and embody that myself and hopefully be able to cheer other people through those experiences. That's beautiful. Yeah. I completely agree with that. And it's so hard to see it at the time. Totally. Well, thank you so much. This has been so informative. I feel like I learned so much from this conversation. So we really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and coming in. And can you just share the name of your book? We'll link it in the show notes as well as how to work with you. But what's the name of the book? It's called Plants for the People. So it's a modern guide to plant medicine. And I really, really wanted to teach people about how to use like everyday common herbs and bring it into your like homes and your hearts in a way that I just want people to remember that this is the people's medicine. You know, I think we've, we feel a little disconnected and like we need to see a practitioner to, to get X, Y, Z. And sure, if you're working on deep health issues, it's great to see a practitioner or, or you want some expert advice, but these are plants you can use in your everyday life. And I wanted to kind of re-inspire people to connect back in. So yeah, plants for the people, it's available. We got a US release, a UK release and an Australian release, New Zealand release. And if people want to work with you, how can they find you? So we're actually just about to relaunch my website and a whole different platform and a bunch of offerings in 2020. But you can get in touch with me. It's just my name. So everything's kind of under my name on my website and Instagram, which is Erin Lovell Veranda. So it's a long name. (laughs) (laughs) If you just kind of pop in um, Instagram, Erin Love, usually it comes up. My whole name will come up (laughs) because of that. Yeah. Perfect. And we'll link to everything in the show notes anyway, so people can go directly there. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or share it with a friend and hit subscribe so you never miss a show.